You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and release it into the wild via the internet. And uh, so we're back doing that today. And it's been a it's been an interesting week. Uh, it's flown for, by. Well, it's been kind of weird for me. My allergies hit me on Monday. So if my voice sounds a little off today, that's why I uh, try not to cough into the mic too much. Uh, <laughs> But, Welcome to Oklahoma, where it's always allergy season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, sometimes they really get me, but but yeah, so I am, but I'm feeling mostly okay, I just have some residual stuff, so. I'm like but having everyone, a princess bride moment in my head here. Uh, he's mostly most, dead. <laughs> mostly dead, yeah. So, well, I, when I, when I uh, put in my, my, my sick request you know for a sick day it has your reason for for time off and i i almost put functionally dead but um <laughs> but i just went with productivity not possible allergies killing me um well. so I, our uh, our uh, administrator has a pretty good sense of humor well he has to he works with you and you know Let's let's face it. Anytime you work with large groups of children, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're pretty much going to hurt somebody, probably yourself. So, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, all that being said, I know everyone's here to to hear about my allergies and all that. But, you know, <laughs> pray for me out there that I'll I'll make it through the winter. Uh, it's it's been really dry here, so that's been part of it. So anyhow, we're having the exact uh, opposite. So well, yeah. I mean, up until recently, it, we we did get some rain. So. This yeah. last week, yeah, we've gotten plenty of it here, so it's amazing what a few hours can mean. So, a few hours, yes. some some topography changes. So, anyhow, but yeah, we're we're in Second Samuel uh, seventeen still. We're kind of wrapping up that chapter. Um, last week we kind of did a family tree of David's troops versus Absalom's troops, and. We're actually going to continue with even more family togetherness. Um, I would not recommend this as a way to have a family reunion or, you know, to work out problems within your family. But uh, actually, this is pretty common in the ancient world that, you know, when you're fighting someone, it was typically another family member. And so, um, you know, because everybody wanted the same stuff. They couldn't just like go out and you know make a new home someplace else. They wanted the same piece of land. They wanted the same city. They want you know all of this stuff. They want the same stuff. So, um, so we still got a lot of family togetherness. We're actually in verse twenty-seven, which is, I think it's a, almost the next to the last verse of of, of this chapter, which yeah, was so a Second Samuel Second Samuel seventeen twenty-seven. Yep, that's where we're picking up. Anyone follow for all those playing at home. <laughs> right. So uh, verse 27 opens up when David came to Mahaning. Let's try that again. When David came to Mahed. <laughs> we're going to get this? I don't know if we're going to get this. 
Mahaname. Mahaname. There we go. Mahaname. Oh my goodness. It's been one of those weeks. So I, I kind of foresaw this being a problem you know that, when... <laughs> you know there's a whole group of people who, who actually found this stuff in actual print so you don't have to rely on I, your handwriting, right? I know. Well, it's not even my handwriting. I have, like, no, this is how high my stress levels have been this week. I have been messing up regular, plain old English words. And I know it's just stress. And so I was hoping that, you know, podcasting it wouldn't. So my high name, my high name is the place where, where David has come to and he has set up camp there, which is appropriate because the name actually means two camps. Uh, we first encountered this back in Genesis 32.3, and this is where Jacob wrestled with the angel. And so uh, this is the place where he divided his family into two camps and he sent, you know, half of head to meet Esau and the rest stayed behind uh, to come with him later. And so uh, it's kind of fitting that now we're looking at another family rivalry because David is fighting his son that um, we're back at this spot and that this has significance beyond just the fact that it's a convenient place to stop. Now. You know, let's be honest, convenient places to stop were often the most utilized places. So, you know, sometimes, yes, there's a definite theological um, significance. And sometimes it's just like, you know, it's, it's this convenience store as you're coming into town that's just convenient to whip into. So you stop there. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the hard things with the Bible is trying to figure out um, how much to read into it and how much to... Um, just go, oh, this is people. So sure. anyhow. But um, David's, the, the verse continue, and we're told that David's joined by this really interesting group. The first person in the list is Shobi, son of Nakash, and he's from Rabbah of the Amorites. Um, if you remember not that long ago that Joab had destroyed the city, had um, captured the city of Rabbah, and that was the place where Joab was fighting when David was doing all the things with Bathsheba he shouldn't have been doing. So um, it's really interesting that Shobi of Rabbah, son of Nakash, is there with David at this time when David is getting ready to be overthrown because Shobi lived in Rabbah. He lived in the city that Joab had just captured. This also means that Shobi is a brother to Hanun, the one that Joab had just um, defeated. He's also a brother to Abigail, which was the mother of Ither. Remember, um, he's um, in this group here. Zuriah, mother of Joab. So we have this, this really weird family connection going on. It, so Shobi, this makes Shobi a cousin to both Ither and Joab. So basically what this is turning into is a great big family feud. Now, Makir, the son of Amiel from De Lodabar. Well, it, now, it, kind, it kind of started that way anyhow. It, it did. And, but, it's, but, you know, it, it, it makes sense because what happens whenever there's a, a something going on in the family? You get your two people who are involved in the initial conflict, right? And then they go to their person that they trust in the family and they tell the story of how it happens. And then that person in the family takes their side. And then the other person goes to another person and tells their story. And then it just kind of spreads until you do get this, this division within a family. Instead of, you know, the two people just working it out together, 
sitting down and talking about it and refusing to talk bad about each other behind each other's backs. And I know I'm guilty of this. You and I are like the two closest ones in the family. So uh, we're often the ones we grumble to. But I, I will say, I think we do a good job of acknowledging, hey, this is what we're dealing with and versus oh, I just can't stand them. So, um, you know, and trying to come up with proactive ways to deal with each other and sometimes, you know, even checking ourselves, am I out of line? So, um, Right. It, and oftentimes the, the things we discuss with one another, they don't go anywhere else. They just right. stay with us. It, exactly. It, so exactly. It's not like we're, it's not, it's like we're going to the, the local gossip mill to be like, oh, I better tell this person to let everyone else will hear it. Well, and, and, you know, and I think that's one of the things that we really have to work on as believers. What's the difference between just grumbling about a situation and seeking wise counsel? And, you know, I think one of the things we need to do is we need to find wise counsel and don't let that you know, like inflate your ego too much. But, but, you know, somebody who's familiar with the situation and somebody who knows the, the other people you're dealing with to, to be able to say, yes, this is how this person is, or this is what this person does. And, uh, you know, how are you going to deal with it? Is it wise to deal with it in any sort of way? Or do you just let the chips fall where they may? And, and so there's a lot of um, negativity in the Christian culture about things like counseling. Because, oh, well, mm-hmm. now you're just looking for someone to complain to, you're looking for someone to, to, you know, validate your viewpoint. Uh, first of all, if that's what your counselor is doing, is just validating your viewpoint, you've got a lousy counselor. You need to find a new one. Sure. sure. And so, you know, w- we look for people that we can trust to talk to, not to stir up trouble, but sometimes so we can just sort through the muck in our own head. And so, uh, you know, sometimes that can get out of line. Uh, sometimes that can become, you know, you know self-valid- seeking self-validation or seeking validation from others. That's, that's not a good thing. Um, but I only brought that up because so often in families, there is this, this ripple effect where it just, it starts, like I said, with us two, and it just progresses out. And I think one of our obligations is to find ways to protect the family. And right. Well, and, and there's that. And one of the things I, I just, sorry, I, I think I might've cut off the end of your point, but the, you know, one of the things that is, I've, I've noticed is that you get in a lot of churches that tend to be controlling. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who tend to really harp on number one, counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two is they have very strict anti gossip policies, mm-hmm. um, which basically means you can't tell someone about a problem you're having, specifically if it involves someone in church mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. And so if you have, uh, if you're at a place where they are, if they tell you you're gossiping because you're sharing your story, you're trying to get help with an issue, mm-hmm. that's something you need to watch out for because there are times when we do need to go and seek someone for, for, for some wisdom in a situation. And yeah. that's just something I wanted to kind of throw out there because the, if, if you're talking about your situation and something that happened to you, mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not gossip. No. It's and not. I mean, and people want to say, well, that's that's not evidence either. But the thing is, whenever you go into a court, evidence is considered an eyewitness is considered mm-hmm. evidence. So if yeah. something happened to you, that's evidence of things happening. Um, and yeah. it's not gossip to seek help if you were if you were hurt and need to know how to handle the situation. 
Well, I mean, not to get too specific, and I don't want to get too derailed on this. Uh, when my ex-husband was being abusive, I was told by not very many, I, I have to point that out, but there were at least a couple of people who told me I was being disrespectful to my husband. I wasn't honoring him by seeking help in our marriage. Okay, that, that's bunk. Um, so, you know, don't, don't let somebody tell you that you're being disrespectful for seeking ways to deal with woundings that you're dealing with. And so, right. um, you know, that's somebody who's more worried about reputation and ego than they are about the truth. And here's the thing. God's reputation isn't reliant on us protecting it. We, we don't need to protect God's reputation. We need to be worried about the truth because that's what he's about. And so, right. you know, it's not going to make God look bad if you tell on leadership or if you report leadership that that's not making God look bad and nobody should use that as a way to guilt you into silence. So, um, anyway, uh, I know we, we bring these issues up a lot, but I mean, I, I they just mean well, a lot I, to me. Well, and, and I think it's important because we, we get so much of the, uh, so much overwhelming, uh, message from the other side. And mm -hmm. there is, uh, I was listening to, I think, I think they changed the name to the bear marriage podcast, Sheila Gregoire. Oh, okay. Um, and they they were talking about some similar things. And so if you if you ever want some some resources and encouragement about uh, reporting things, definitely check them out. Oh uh, yeah. I, I, there was something specific I was going to reference, but I she's solid. Got, half, got halfway there and forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, her 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 stuff is solid. So I we do. I mean, she's not affiliated with us in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I, you know. I, I, we support her work, and so we do think she's a good resource for people, and I, I really want people to not only take advantage of what she's done and use it as a way to help you, but also, uh, you know, check her out, listen to her podcast, read her post on Facebook, follow her, she's uh, to love, honor, and vacuum, and share her stuff and just really get her work out there because I think it's important uh, for the health of a lot of Christian marriages who've just, there's a lot of stuff out there that's bad advice for Christian marriages in particular. So, Yeah, and, and one other thing I just want to tack on, and I know this has very little to do with the text, it just kind of is where the conversation's gone, is, you know, I was talking to Mickey about some things the other day, and, and she was saying that, you know, growing up, she was, uh, and this is, I know, you know, the, a lot of church people would, would say, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be mad at people, and you shouldn't, you know, bring things up because, you know, love keeps no record of wrong. Mm -hmm. And they, they would use, you know, a lot of people would use that as a way to excuse, you know, well, I, yeah, I've done that and it was terrible, but you should just get over it. Right. Um, it, it's kind of the way they would go about things. And it's like, well, there's, there's a difference between keeping a record of wrong and, 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 you know, tending wounds. Right. That's, right. That's, it's a lot different, you know, <laughs> Those are two very different things. And we know that in the physical realm. And so often what God has given us in the physical realm actually mirrors what goes on in the spiritual and the emotional realm. And so, you know, when you, yeah, if somebody stabs you, you're going to go get that taken care of and there's going to be a scar. And to think that there wouldn't be a scar from an, an emotional or a mental or a spiritual wound is ridiculous. So, right. but okay. So back to 2 Samuel 17. Um, we've got Shobi and then we have Makir, son of Amiel, and he's from Lodabar. And we met him back when, um, it's in chapter nine. It's whenever David was trying to figure out, are there any people left from the house of Saul? 
And we find out that Makir was the one providing a home for Mephibosheth. And so his appearance here is surprising because we would have been tempted to think that anyone who provided a home for Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, would have been a supporter of the house of Saul and would have you know, supported even Mephibosheth's claim to the throne. That's not the case. So we're seeing where his allegiances lie. Um, Barzillai, which I, I think somebody needs to name their child that, um, the Gileadite from Rogalim. Uh, we don't know much about him from this passage. Uh, his name means man of iron. Uh, we later learn that he is wealthy. We're going to find he, we're going to encounter him again later. Now, the last time we um, encountered a Gileadite was at in, in Judges with Jephthah. And remember, Jephthah made the rash vow to sacrifice the next thing he saw if he won the battle, and it happened to be his daughter. And so. We, don't, we aren't real familiar with them. We do believe that this is a geographic descriptor, that this is, you know, they're from Gilead. So a um, very popular place in the Bible. And we only have two mentions of Regalim, which, and both are in reference to Barzillai. And it means literally the place of the fullers. Now, fuller can have two definitions. One is a fuller is somebody who cleans clothes. But the second is it's part of the blacksmithing process. Um, particularly, there's a, a fuller hammer, and it's used to spread iron or to put grooves in it. Um, I haven't done this with iron. I've got to do a similar process with silver. It's, it's a very uh, precise and exacting skill. So if you're good at it, then you have a marketable skill. Now, I tend to go with the second definition, because Barzillai's name actually means man of iron. So it makes sense. And then also, if you, um, if you look at the idea of he's rich, he's from a city of fullers, he's a man of iron. This guy probably provided weapons and armor for, for soldiers, for warriors. So, sure. you know, so we've got these three guys. So we've got an Amorite. We have a supporter of Saul, and we have a man of Gilead. Now, the thing about him being from Gilead, this is where Absalom was camped with Israel. And he's also a potential, you know, like I said, armorer or swordsmith. So by joining David rather than Absalom, it, it, it really, none of these people make sense. They, they don't seem to make sense on the surface level of things. because. David had just decimated and captured Shobi's hometown. He had taken the throne from Saul, who obviously Makir supported. And then even leaving his home, um, Barzillai, put himself in danger from Absalom. So if we're just looking for logistical reasons for these guys to join him, it's really not apparent, not from the text anyway. And the only reason why they might have joined David is because they are loyal to him and they believe he is the rightful king of, of Israel. Now, mm -hmm. the previous verse, when we talked last week, uh, had gave us parallels between David and Absalom. Here we have dissimilarity. So the previous verse we had, you know, the, the, two, um, the two generals who were cousins and their mothers both being uh, the daughters of the Nakash. And we, we talked about how those kind of lined up. Now, in this verse, we, like I said, we've got the dissimilarities. Absalom has Israel. 
David has this group of unlikely supporters, supporters who are actually not of Israel itself, which is really kind of interesting because uh, you would think that God's chosen and anointed king over Israel would be, would be bringing followers from that nation when it, we have the exact opposite. And I think this speaks to the later inclusion of the Gentile into the church. I, mean, I don't want to go too deep with that, but I think it, it demonstrates how the good news and the, the promises of the Bible have been through for all people throughout time if they're willing to join with God's purposes. It wasn't exclusive to the nation of Israel. That's where it started, and that's where it was protected and preserved, and that was their honor and duty, but it was not something that they were supposed to hoard to themselves. And I think— Right. We well, there's— Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just— I just yeah, Go finish what you're saying. I, I think we see evidence throughout Scripture of how people did see the truth of what Israel had and valued and honored that to, to join Israel. So— Yeah. Well, and also I think there's a there's an aspect of this here where you have um, people who are not of Israel, who you know are not of God's elect nation, mm-hmm. who are seeing David as a good king, mm-hmm. and so they're you know you're looking at people getting inv- other kings getting involved in foreign policy, going, hey, we'd rather have David on the throne than that guy, right? Than than his son, and so. And you're recognizing, you're seeing people recognize the goodness of David, and David's supposed to be a, a uh, you know, a type of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So when people, even who are not of the elect crowd of Israel, <laughs> see right. David's goodness, they follow him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, I, I think that's kind of our, you know, it might be one of those images of, hey, you know, even even the sinful quote-unquote, nations can recognize the goodness of David, who's supposed Mm to foreshadow Jesus here. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that should tell us something. Maybe the Gentiles later are going to be able to (laughs) see the goodness that Jesus puts forth into the world. And so, anyway, that's kind of what I'm seeing there. Well, yeah, and, and the fact that God's mercy and God's blessing and, you know, God's goodness is on display for others through the keeping of the Torah, through the honoring of God's word. I, I mean, that's huge. And, and that, that's a, a, a major point uh, of witness. And the fact that, yes, you don't have to be part of the quote-unquote elect, which in the Old Testament, Israel is the elect, but you can actually join with the elect. Uh, and again, we, we've talked about that in other places in Samuel, where we see these outsiders who have joined with Israel and said, this is something I want to be a part of, and, and willingly choosing to renounce their old affiliations and family and nationality status in order to join with what God is doing on the earth. And so, yeah, I think we can carry these principles on over into the New Testament, because that's what the point is. This is why we have these stories, and this is why the New Testament writers refer back to the Old Testament so often, and why Paul says all Scripture is profitable. Uh, you know, he, he didn't say, well, you know, except for that one part. Uh, but anyway, verse 28 through 29, um, we're told that you know, these guys bring to the people beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched corn, grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese. Um, so we get this list, this, this very expansive list that actually exceeds anything. Remember, um, oh my goodness, I lost his name, um, but before um, 
let me turn Ziva. Ziva has showed up. He didn't have nearly this much. He brought this to, to David. And then uh, when Abigail brought provision to David, not nearly this much. I mean, these guys are bringing the goods. They bring beds. So they, they are helping them get entrenched for a long, drawn-out conflict. And so what we need to realize about this is this is a direct reversal of the wilderness journey in Israel and in Exodus. At, the, at that time, when we're talking about the Exodus, the other, nature, other, sorry, the other nations refused to allow the nation of Israel passage and they refused to allow Israel to, to have any food, to provide any kind of um, sustenance for the people. And now the, these men who are bringing food to David and the people without being asked, they're giving from a place of compassion and they're affirming David's right to rule. So we have this full reversal where these outsiders, instead of saying, uh-uh, we don't want anything to do with you, are coming in and saying, hey, we want to be a part and we want to we help take care of you. And that... This is one of the essence, or one of the, the, the primary aspects of David's story is he both mimics and reverses the Israelite journey. And of course, we're going to see aspects of that in Jesus' story too. And so when you've got David, you know, wandering out, I mean, he leaves Jerusalem, he wanders out into the wilderness, he crosses over the Jordan. We have all these wonderful parallels that says, hey, you need to pay attention. Because there's this microcosm of Israel's history as a nation being played out in this one man. And this one man is actually going to be what brings in those outsiders to offer this kind of support and this kind of care. And then, of course, with the, the ministry of Jesus, we see this just explode. You know, the, mm-hmm. what David does in a very small way becomes something that's literally global. So, now, we're moving into chapter 18, and so David's had a chance to regroup. He, he's got a time to, to kind of think. He's got time to, to uh, make his plans, and he has run long enough. And so we're told in verse 1 that David mustered the men who were with him and set them over the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So during... Absalom's rebellion, you know, people had defected from David's side. I mean, we obviously saw that with Ahithophel. I mean, he was one of David's trusted advisors. He goes and joins um, Absalom. Uh, we've got people who, you know, are clearly on David's side. We've got people who are clearly on Absalom's side. We have people who are rooting for Saul's house, like we saw with Shemi. David doesn't know who he has. At, at this point, trying to figure out exactly who is remaining, who's left, who's joined him. This is a big question. And we, the only thing we do know is that Absalom has Israel. David has this little group that's left Jerusalem with him. So the, the people in the city, which remember, not everybody from the city joined him, but the people from the city are certainly not going to number anywhere close to the people of Israel who've joined uh, Absalom. So Aligning, you know, organizing his troops, coming up with divisions and setting them into some kind of structure makes very logical, um, logical sense. And I think the other thing we need to remember is this didn't happen in the time it takes to read this. You know, this was right. something that was spread out over who knows how many months. Tradition says six months. The scripture doesn't give us that uh, exact of a number, but 
the idea that it was a protracted event. It was not just a few hours. It wasn't a few days. It wasn't even just a few weeks. It, it probably did last a few months, especially when you consider the logistics in moving armies of this size. And Absalom's moving a, a considerable army. I mean, even just rallying the army, sending messengers to say, hey, Absalom's king now. Are you guys going to join him or not? I mean, that's going to take three or four days. And then people are going to think about it for a few days. And then they're going to have to pack. You know, I mean, when you just think about what it would take to gather that army, now you know that it has to take some time. Now, the, the possibility, one of the possibilities that this, this time opens up is that there's a good chance that Absalom's followers are becoming disillusioned with Absalom. Because think about who Absalom's primary, most important supporter was. It's Ahithophel. Now, if Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, and one of his rallying cries to get people to join behind Absalom instead of, of David is to point out David's sin with Bathsheba and to talk about what a horrible king he was and how he couldn't be trusted. And then Absalom's first move is to rape David's concubines. You've got to imagine there's some conflict in people's perceptions about Absalom. And this would definitely lead to disillusionment. And, you know, we can look at today's politics, and I'm not going to get into specifics, but when we're told that a politician stands for one thing, and then he gets into the office and does the exact opposite, people get disillusioned. And they begin to regret, you know, electing that official. And so to say that, that there was a potential for disillusionment here, I think, is an understatement. So um, especially now that Ahithophel, the one who had rallied so many people to Absalom's side, has gone and killed himself. That's how hopeless he thinks the situation is. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't really think about unless you pause and bring in all of these, these previous verses and all of these little events that have happened in the past, because now we aren't even talking about Ahithophel. But his influence is still there. Why? Because he is Absalom's primary, or was Absalom's primary advisor. So um, the other thing we've got to remember, too, is David is facing superior forces, superior numbers. I mean, if David is going to make a strategic attack against Absalom, he's got to do some planning. And I think one of the things that people kind of shy away from um, is planning, is, is counting, it, it's thinking about what the future possibilities need to be, how to handle a situation, and we go, oh, we're just walking on faith. I, I think there's totally a time to just walk in faith, that you don't know the next step, and you're just doing the best you can in the moment. But that doesn't mean we turn off our brain. It doesn't mean we stop thinking, we stop planning, we stop using the gifts God has given us. And we're, we're actually going to jump into Psalm 20 before too long. Uh, and, you know, the opening, um, part of the opening lines of that, or sorry, not opening, but in there, it talks about, you know, may God fulfill all your plans. And so when we talk about this, this is not a bad thing to plan. Now, where people get confused is later on in David's story, there's going to be a time when David numbers his troops 
and this is going to cause problems. And we'll get into that story later. This is a very famous story. And so when they see David numbering his troops, counting the men who are with him here, they want to read from that story back into the story. There's no judgment call here. There, there's absolutely nothing that says this is the wrong, wrong move to make. So um, first 2A, David divides his army. I'm, I'm not going to read it, but he divides it into thirds. He, he get, divides it into Joab, uh, under Joab, and then under Abishai, Joab's uh, brother, and then uh, Ittai, the Gittite. So we know Joab. We know that he is David's primary general. We know that he led the army at Rabbah. He carried out the command to kill Uriah without blinking. We know that he killed Abner, uh, even whenever Abner was in talks with David to join David. We know that he arranged for Absalom to come home and that he employed that strategy, that very complex strategy with the wise woman of Tekoa. So we know Joab. We kind of know how he thinks. We kind of know the 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 methodology that this man is going to use. And, and we know that he, above all, can be trusted on the battlefield. And we know that he always does what he thinks is right for David. Even if David may not agree, Joab is the guy who's going to push to, to do what he thinks is right because he doesn't care what David thinks. He's not intimidated by David. He is always looking beyond what David is seeing or what David is allowing emotion to, to cloud his judgment over. And this is going to become very important in the story. Uh, we met Abishai back in 1 Samuel 26.6. This is the second time that David spared Saul's life. And Abishai was ready to kill Saul at that moment, and David stopped him. He was with Abner, um, or, sorry, with Joab at the Battle of Gibeon, which is where the whole thing went down that led to, to Joab killing Abner. And uh, he was with David whenever Shimei had cursed David. So he's been around a while. We also know that when he shows up, man, some, he wants to kill somebody. This seems to be like the repetitive theme with this guy. He doesn't really care about anything else. He just wants somebody to die. Um, Ittai the Gittite, we, he joined David earlier when David left Jerusalem, and he brought... Um, brought his family, he brought troops, and so he, he joins David, David tried to dissuade him, and he stayed with David, and now he becomes one of the, the three leading generals that follow David. So verse 2b, and the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you, will also go out with you. So the wording here is, is interesting, because David doesn't offer to lead. He's put these guys in charge, and he's kind of stepped back, and he's saying, I'm not going to go out and lead over you. I'm going to go out with you. And there's a possibility here that he's actually saying, I'm just going to go out like another soldier. I'm going to go and fight. You guys take care of the logistics. I'm going to go fight. And so that's, that's kind of unusual for a king to say. Now, on one level, it, it makes absolute sense. David's been out of the, the, the warlord game for a while as far as actually being involved in the battle. He has been part of, um, you know, running the politics, making sure the diplomatic duties are met, you know, doing all the things a king does. He hasn't been swinging a sword. He's pretty much turned the military over to Joab at this point. And we saw that at Rabbah. Remember, Joab had to say, get out here unless you want all the credit to go to me. And so 
you know, uh, from that perspective, it totally makes sense that David would actually say, I'm going to step back and just be a, a fighter here and let you guys handle logistics. So verse three, but the man said, you shall not go out. But the men said, sorry, you shall not go out for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. So a couple of different reasons for the guys saying this um, have been suggested. And one of them is that Dave is just too old, that due to his age, it's probably not a good idea for him to join them on the battlefield. That's one possibility. I mean, he's definitely not a young man at this point. Uh, we really don't know what his age is because the Bible doesn't really care about giving us those specifics. Um, but a second reason, and I tend to lean towards this, is that what the men are saying is actually true. If you remember Ahithophel's original plan to, to stop all this, to make sure that Absalom became king, it had one major component kill the king. Not get into a fight with everyone else, not to try to take on David's armies. Kill David. If you kill David, his armies will scatter, and then Absalom becomes the de facto king. I mean, he's the heir apparent. He's the guy who wins the battle. And so um, putting David on the field is actually dangerous, not just to David, who is obviously a major target, but it's dangerous to the stability of Israel and Jerusalem. It, it could actually unravel the kingdom completely. So to, to stop that from happening, keeping David at home, keeping him safe in a city would actually make sense. So I don't think we need to... to go much further than that because, I mean, yeah, he might have been old, but I mean, good grief. Moses was still leading the children of Israel at 120. Uh, age really sure. doesn't matter in these stories. And one of the, the, the things that's so often said about these biblical leaders is that they continue to be strong, that you know, the light has not diminished in their eyes. You know, the, at, at these great ages, they were still considered to be fearsome warriors. So I, I really don't see age being so much of a factor at this point as I do that it just makes sense. Right. So verse four, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, the sages say this is when David composed Psalm 20, and we'll, we'll get into that. But... Um, I, I want to look at a few things that are happening in this verse before we get there. So number one, David's heeding the vice of his generals. He will do whatever literally is good in their eyes. Now, it's interesting that at this point in time, when this phrase is used, that rather than what's good in their eyes is to take advantage of or to abuse or, you know, uh, just forget God. In this moment, what's right in the general's eyes is to protect God's anointed. And so that's not something we have seen very often, that the intent or the, the, the purpose of doing something that's right in their eyes is actually a good thing. It's a selfless thing. Because now, go ahead. Question, are the, the generals, are these the, those Gentile uh, leaders that you were referring to earlier? 
this is actually uh, this is Joab, his brother Abishai, okay. and and Intai. Now Intai oh, was okay. not sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, there's a lot of people to keep track of here. <laughs> well, we're, we've got a battle. I mean, a whole nation's involved in a civil war, and which again, uh, in case you forgot, this is going back to that last part of Judges, where when the Levite and the concubine and the, the abuse of a woman leads to a civil war, it, it it's right. following the same pattern. And so when you have a civil war, I mean, you do have a lot of people to, to keep track of. And so Ittai the Gittite, we, we talked about him. We don't know whether or not he was a, an Israelite who lived in the area of Gath or if he was actually someone from Gath. So there's some debate on that. And you know, feel free to go back and reference that uh, episode. You edited it. You should remember. But, uh, but go back and reference that episode. Um, the second thing is we're told David sits beside the gate as the troops go out. Now, this is the same place that Eli sat whenever he received word that the troops had captured, uh, that the Philistines had captured the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, we, we're having another reversal here. What, what's very interesting in, in Eli's case, Eli was sitting at the gate, not when the troops went out, but when they were coming back in. And we've got to remember that in Eli's story, his sons took the Ark of the Covenant out into battle as a talisman, as, as a good luck charm to ensure victory. Where David, at the beginning of the story, what was one of the first things that happened when he left Jerusalem? The priest bring the Ark of the Covenant. And David said, no, you take it back. You put it back where it belongs. And he refused to use the Ark of the Covenant as that talisman. And so... Um, so we've got some similarities immediately, but there's similarities that are dissimilar. They're opposites. They're the reversals. And, you know, Eli was told that his sons died in battle. And when the ark, when he was told about his sons, it's kind of like, meh, whatever. But when he's told about the ark of the covenant, he, um, he actually falls over beside the gate and dies. He breaks his neck at that point. Now, because we have those reversals, there, there's something going on here that, that is very interesting because we're seeing that David is superior to the judges that had once ruled. Uh, Eli w- dies, of course, and David is protected from death. We're going we're gonna to find that. But what we're getting is a sense of anticipation. Uh, we're, we're, we should be realizing that something massive is going on because David is leading in the right way. David is leading how God's chosen leader should lead as opposed to Eli. And we already know that one of the problems with Eli was that he wouldn't keep his sons in line. He, he wouldn't make sure that they did what was proper and appropriate. And what, what was their major sin? Well, they're eating the sacrifices, but they're also abusing the women who serve at, the, um, at Shiloh, the place of worship at that point in time. What's Absalom done? He has taken the city of Jerusalem and he's abused David's wife. So again, we have more points of connection. It's David's sons, David's son Absalom, or even Amnon, versus um, Eli's sons. And so, what we're seeing here is the the question of what kind of leader is David going to be, and how's that being presented in his sons? Can he turn it around? Can he actually be better than Eli in every respect, or is it just going to be this one aspect of sending the ark back, making sure that the ark isn't abused? And so 
we see these patterns build to, to show us that we need to be looking for, for something bigger and greater. We need to be looking for an improvement. We need to be trying to see where people aren't going to be stuck in the way things were done in a previous generation. Are, are they actually following God or are they being bound to the restraints and the cultural conditioning of their time and place? And so David is, is starting to make some of these changes. He's starting to get some things right. He's not going to get there completely. And we are going to be able to look at the fact that, you know, David's downfall within Jerusalem after Bathsheba was the fact that he did not discipline his son. He did not discipline Amnon. And now God is stepping in through, through Absalom, and we're going to talk about how Absalom really is an instrument of God. He's stepping in through Absalom to administer punishment for the fact that David didn't deal with this issue in his own household, just like Eli. So you have your similarities, you have your reversals, and then you come back to these, these similarities that show that not, you, know, you can get things better, you can get things right to a better degree, maybe is a way to say it, but God does not exempt anyone from their sins. God doesn't let anyone get by with stuff. And so when David actually takes the, the position and he gets dangerously close to mirroring this, the, the behaviors of the sons of Eli, both in, you know, he's got the, the ark, and remember he wanted to build the temple, which God said was a good thing, but God also recognized how that could play into David's pride and his hubris. God puts a stop to it. And then David then abuses the women, the woman Bathsheba, just like Eli's son. So David occupies the, that dual role there, both of Eli's son and of Eli. And in this moment, he's actually stepping up and he is occupying the role, both of king, judge, and warlord, sending everyone out. And, and he's starting to realign not just his house, but he's realigning the, um, the nation into a proper, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a proper way of operating and how it should be that God's anointed should be on the throne and God's anointed should be leading the nation. And if that means administering justice and discipline to a son, then that's exactly what needs to happen. So now there, there is something else that's going to happen here uh, that's significant because uh, it, the Hebrew, it doesn't say that either Eli or David fell beside the gate. It says that they fell at the hand of the gate. Um, now, we aren't going to talk about why that's significant because um, it to get there, we're going to have to, we'd have to skip some stuff in the passage. So just hang on to that little bit of information. We're going to talk about why the hand of the gate is important uh, because this word's going to come back up. So anyway, verse five, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard him when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning uh, Absalom. So David tells his generals how he wants his son dealt with, uh, you know, deal gently with him. He needs to be stopped, but, you know, don't, don't punish him. Don't treat him like you would the average rebel. He's still my son. Now, Brueggemann notes that uh, David makes the very, he, he's very careful not to reference the father-son relationship. 
This is the king speaking. David's trying to to hold on to that that position of I am the king giving a command. I'm not just a father being too too easy on my kid. So be careful with the young man Absalom. Not you know don't hurt my son. That there's a difference there. there there's a difference in those two statements. Don't hurt my son versus be gentle with the young man. One's a royal decree. One is a plea of a father. And David chooses to give, excuse me, the royal decree. Uh, and there's a suggestion that maybe David is doing this to separate himself from Absalom's death and saying, I'm not responsible. Uh, you know, I, I asked that they didn't hurt him, so you can't blame it on me. I think that suggestion is reading our modern sensibilities into the text because he's a rebel. Killing a son who rises up against a father, that's normal. That was just status quo for the day because it was almost a given that a son would rise up against a father. We've looked at that and throughout so many themes of mythology and history, and we, we see it over and over again. For a father to put down an uprising against his son and to either completely exile and banish his son or to kill his son, not something that the people really felt, you know, was awful. They, they figured that it was very much uh, just the way things operated. Because when someone tries to take the throne, you stop it. You use whatever means right. you have to to stop it. So now... The rabbis were, were really puzzled by this behavior because in their mind, man, this, is, this evil, wicked Absalom ha, has risen up and he's tried to take Jerusalem, the holy city, and he's, he's touched God's anointed. And how dare he? And, you know, this is not a good thing. So why would David extend grace and mercy? Why, does, why is he not demanding justice? And uh, one solution, I thought this was a, actually a pretty good solution. Uh, is that they they say that David understands Absalom's rebellion as that fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. They they say that David that Absalom really didn't have a choice. And now I'm I don't want to go that far, but let, let's kind of look at this uh, from the perspective of human nature and human choices within the divine plan. And so their suggestion is because David saw Absalom as the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy, that David actually took the responsibility for Absalom's actions upon himself, that he saw himself as a stand-in, that you know, Absalom didn't do anything other than attempt to right a wrong that David had done. So therefore, if David had conducted himself properly, Absalom would not have had it would not have had to act. And if Absalom hadn't acted, then there wouldn't be this rebellion and civil war within the kingdom. Now, I, I don't I don't know if that's reading too much into the story. Uh, it, it does offer some interesting parallels with Christ. Someone who's willing to take responsibility for our bad actions, I and mean, somebody who's willing to stand in and say, hey, don't don't punish them. For their sins. So, I mean, obviously, I, I do not believe that Jesus is the one who caused our sins. Um, like the rabbis are saying, David believed he caused Absalom's sins. 
but I do believe that, that you, there's some, some parallels that we can play with from that perspective, that the idea of, you know, don't, don't blame them for what they did. Don't, don't hold it against him. Cover him is actually the word. I think it's very interesting that, that, that deal gently is actually uh, uh, the idea of covering someone in protection. It, it's not just a um, be nice to them. And so it goes a little deeper than, than, you know, just be kind. And so I, I think that if we, if we took some time and, and looked at those ideas of covering someone so that they aren't paying for their sins, we could definitely find those parallels within the New Testament and Christ and our relationship and our forgiveness of sins. Now, obviously, David's not going to be able to do, you know, not going to be able to save his son in, in an eternal sense. Uh, that's beyond any human being. But what he can do is possibly make a way for Absalom to continue to live. And if Absalom continues to live, perhaps there's hope of reconciliation. And if there's hope of reconciliation, then maybe Absalom can be king at some point in the future. Unfortunately, I think most of us know that's not how it works out and uh, for so many reasons. But Again, I have to go, is that, is that reading too much into what's being said here? And now, real quick side note, what I think is interesting is how many times the rabbinic explanations for a person's behavior or actions within these Old Testament narratives are actually very close to providing a Christian understanding of these different principles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in if you if you study any of the rabbinic writing, a lot of times you'll find that this very harsh denouncement of Christianity. And so it kind of cracks me up that the explanations actually bring the text closer to Christianity uh, so often. So, but either way, um, David is making this decree publicly. I mean, he's not only telling his generals, all the people heard is what we're told. So there's no excuse for anyone to claim ignorance. Uh, and it, it's also possibly a way to try to put a leash, particularly on Joab and Abishai. Remember, Joab doesn't think anything about killing people he thinks might harm David. We've already seen that. Abishai's the same way. Kill Shimmy, kill Saul. They, they will kill anyone they think is posing some kind of threat to their king. And so maybe by telling them publicly, hey, you need to deal gently. You need to cover my son. Then David can say, hey, look, you know, everybody knew what you were supposed to do. Everybody knows how you're supposed to behave. You can't say you didn't know. And this is going to become important in the story. Now, um, all of this has described what's going to happen as David moves into battle. That's, that's been our setup. And before we move forward in the chapter, I do want to pause and look at Psalm 20 because it's an, it's an interesting psalm. And, and I'm not going to get real deep into it because we don't have a lot of time. But I, I do want to uh, just kind of, by in a way of introduction, almost every commentator who, who talks about Psalm 20 agrees that the psalm was written either to a king or for a king preceding a battle or some kind of military alliance. And 
these, uh, this psalm is something that is speaking probably to a king, and it's coming from internal evidence within the psalm. And so, once again, we're going to be facing that question, did David write this? And if David did write it, did he write it for this particular event? But it is a very fitting psalm, not just from the standpoint of reading it before one goes into warfare, but actually praying on behalf of anyone who's facing a crisis moment where the crisis one is facing is so overwhelming and it's so big that the individual or the community can't get through it without God's help. And so I think that's the the key here. We need to be um, looking at this this story with David going into this battle and, and recognize that he is completely outnumbered. Him retaking Jerusalem, him retaking Israel at this point, because remember, Absalom has all of Israel with him, is ridiculous. And that, so when the, the sages or the rabbis decided that, hey, we're going to attribute this psalm to David, or we're going to build on the tradition that attributes this psalm to David at this point in time, they are basically telling us how dire David's situation is. They're, they're explaining to us that David, by all rights, I mean, he should be out of the running at this point. And especially since most of them think that possibly David was too old to actually participate in a battle at this point. Now, uh, the, the psalm itself is only eight verses long. I think maybe nine verses, depending on whether you're, which way you're um, dividing it up. So I, I do want to encourage, uh, before you join us next week, to take some time to actually to read through that psalm. You might actually find it encouraging, um, because I think so many of us have, are looking at life going, this is too much. You know, I can't handle this. This is overwhelming. Right. And, you know, and if you've never found yourself in that situation, um, I want to know your secret for the first, first part. Um, two, are you alive? Um, because I think every believer who is aware of their circumstance and their, their situation in life has, has had those moments where, man, you just, you're forced to try to, try to bring the, the situation into a framework where you can perceive that God is actually working and God is on your side. He hasn't abandoned you. And, and that's what this psalm is about. And what's really cool about this psalm is there's no, there's no critique. There's no lament or complaining about the, the enemy. Uh, there's no uh, complaining about you know, betrayal or warfare. It, it, it's just saying, this is the place I am. And this is another reason why that psalm was thought to have been written at this point was because the battle is against somebody that David does love. And so the fact that the enemy isn't, you know, talked about in a negative way is just, this is a point where I, I need this to, I need a win. I, I, I need a win, not because the person is so horrible, but because I, I have to do this if we're going to survive. So, Lord, can you help me? Are you going to be here? Are you going to, to uh, bless my plans? Are you going to help me fulfill my desires? And I need to hear from you before I proceed. And I need to know that you are actually here with me in this moment. 
So uh, I'm, I'm excited about getting into that psalm. And then, of course, we'll return to um, the story of Absalom and uh, Joab and Absalom's death, because we've got some really interesting points on that one. And Yeah, so, that's going to be real interesting. Yeah, so I decided to draw it out because I could, and I'm mean. Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, it helps us get content. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm just going to be honest. I have been like uh, running around with a chicken with my head cut off and trying with to... With the chicken? With, with your it. head cut off? See, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, who knew? I I didn't. I I, I didn't know buying a house and moving was going to be so stressful. Good grief! <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's it's a big change. Even if you even if you are you know even if you've done it before, it doesn't matter. It's always a big change. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, you know, we got in here had our first rainstorm and the roof started leaking, and you know, it's like, oh, well, that's fun. Um, <laughs> so you know, you just these wonderful little surprises that are coming up. So yeah, call your home warranty people. <laughs> Amen. That that's already been done. So, <laughs> but yep. Anyhow, that's why you have them throw that in for the first year? It's helpful. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, but you know, there's been good things too, and and uh, I know I talked last week about just how grateful I was for the people who've just been excited on my behalf, and you know, and I'm still getting people who are finding out because you know Facebook's algorithms are weird and. Uh, still getting just sure. these really wonderful messages like you moved. I'm so excited for you. So that's just been yeah. really cool. Yeah, well, it, it's good. Well, hey, uh, yeah, that seems like a good place to pause and uh, you know, you know, before jumping to a whole other book. Yeah, uh, and then I'll, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what we have to say about that because the Psalms are always interesting whenever mm-hmm. you really do a deep dive into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, um. I guess we'll let everyone go, and we will see everybody next week. In the meantime, oh, hit hey, us up on... Huh? Hold what? up. Oh, you know, I forgot. Information. Yeah, yeah we've, got a, a, we've got a we've got an episode. I got to be on the commentarians this month. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's out. Yeah, it's out with The Conjuring and Joe, and it's so cool. And we announced on there that Doug Overmeyer with CRC is joining us. And he's got so many more um, resources when we're talking about haunted houses and ghosts and supernatural experiences and uh, just all of that fun stuff. So we want y'all guys to to be aware that uh, not only can we talk about that spiritual um, supernatural events with The Conjuring with Joe, which is great. But also, there's going to be so many more resources with um, with Doug on CRC, and we are so happy to have him join Raven Creek and be a part of uh, this podcasting network, which has just been stunning. So, yeah. yeah, and that's yeah, that's it's not completely done. He's not ready to launch, but we will let you know when he that was happens. supposed to we're, be. We're excited. I'm going to tell him I scolded him on air. He was supposed to be, but well, anyway, <laughs> no. it, it, it happens. I mean, you 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 know as well as anyone. Sometimes oh, yeah. you get delayed when you're trying to do all your production. So. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, and that's the great thing about Doug. He's going to know that I'm just giving him a little friendly ribbing. So it's good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on that note, then everyone, if you have uh, questions, comments, concerns, uh, even uh, <laughs> feel free to send them our way, um, and we'll be. We'll be glad to take a look at those Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website. And you can always send us the old uh, fashioned email at RavenCreekSC at gmail.com. If you really want to get in touch with us directly, I do check that email uh, pretty regularly. I'm so. glad you do. Anyway, 
well, I mean, someone has to. So I guess, uh, I guess that's me. And uh, <laughs> until then, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next